Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. special uh, treat today. Uh, We have a guest speaker who will be preaching for us, Victor Nakah. He uh, currently serves as um, our denomination's um, uh, overseas uh, arm called uh, MTW, Mission to the World, and he oversees much of what's happening in sub-Saharan Africa, and he has been, he's in town uh, for some various meetings, not just uh, in town, I guess he's going to be uh, various states over the course of the next few weeks, and he's here in New York, and so we snagged him, because I really would love to hear from him, and uh, excited to have him. Again, he serves with MTW. He also uh, supervises uh, master's degree students and PhD students at South African uh, Theological Seminary. Uh, as well as the Africa Reformation Theological Seminary. He's coming in from uh, Johannesburg, and so we were actually really excited. He's part of a, a church plant that's there as well, and so it's always uh, it was good just to hear some of what God's doing there. And he'll share a little bit more about what God's doing uh, in his life and in his ministry. Uh, and so we're so grateful to have him. Uh, I'm going to welcome Joanna to come and read today's scripture, uh, and then we will have Victor come immediately after that. And when he does come, let's give him a nice warm Welcome, uh, REH, welcome. Joanna, please come. Today, God speaks to us from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. The word of the Lord. 
thank you, Justin, for the opportunity to share from God's Word. Um, like you had, my name is Victor. I'm married to Nosizo, who is at home uh, watching right now, because she promised she'll be watching uh, the, the service. Uh, we have two adult daughters, a son-in-law, and two grandchildren. Uh, I was saying to Justin, I'm part of a church plant in the eastern part of Johannesburg, where uh, we are the oldest couple, you know, we're the oldest couple, so we have many children and grandchildren in that congregation, and it's exciting to work with Sithye, you know, who is the church planter. Uh, we, we divide sub-Saharan Africa into three regions, uh, East Africa, West Africa, and Southern Africa. And our primary mission in those three regions is to plant churches. Uh, we're planting reformed covenantal Presbyterian churches. Uh, we're building strong, healthy presbyteries. Um, and we're very excited about what God is doing uh, right across the region. Uh, and the church plant of which we're part of in Johannesburg is one of the churches in the presbytery of South Africa. Uh, and there are now 10 churches uh, that are working together. And we are trusting God to see more churches planted uh, and more leaders uh, developed. And so for this morning, uh, we're looking at Jeremiah 29 verses 1 to 14. Uh, and the title I've given to the text is uh, Present but Temporary Home, Lessons from the Exiles of Judah in Babylon. Home sweet home. Home is where the heart is. There is no place like home. Uh, this is one of the famous American expressions uh, written by uh, John Howard uh, in the 17th century. Uh, and, and he goes on to say, you know, those who like uh, poems, uh, mid pleasures and palaces, though we may roam, be it ever so humble, there is no place like home. A charm from the skies seems to hollow us there, which sought through the world is never met with elsewhere. Home sweet home, there is no place like home. But here's a question for us this morning. What if, what if you must leave home and perhaps never to go back, never to return? What if you find yourself far from home and it's not clear whether you return or not. Not just, not just for a day away from home, not just for a day, not just for a month, maybe for two generations. What if you cannot go back home? In 597 AD, the Israelites of Judah found themselves very far away from home, some 1,600 kilometers away from home in Babylon. And the reason their city was conquered and most of it was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And according to chapter 52 verse 28 of Jeremiah, more than 3,000 people were carried into captivity in Babylon. And among them were Jehoiakim and his household, some priests and some prophets. And that's the reason why in the text some of those prophets were panicking and they wanted to give a positive word you know, to the Israelites. And the question again, how can we live anywhere in the world, and particularly as people of God, in the midst of a culture and society 
which may dismiss us or despise us or marginalize us as was the case with the exiles of Judah and Babylon to whom this chapter is written. And that's the question these exiles of Judah faced. And that's the question before us even this morning. How then shall we live in this world that is not our present home but our temporary home? The reaction of the exiles as we read the text varied between on one hand just utter pessimism, total despair for those who felt this is it. This is the end of us. We, we're never going to go back. There's absolutely no hope. We're just going to die here. We might as well be dead in our graves. And that's what they said in Ezekiel 37, talking about their captivity. And then on the other hand, optimism of those who thought, well, it will be over pretty soon. Maybe just a week. Maybe just a month and we'll be back home. A few months and the exiles will be back in Jerusalem. People like the false prophets. Uh, we told about Hananiah who Jeremiah had to speak to in Jeremiah 28 and pretty much ask him to shut up. But as we look at the text, it's clear that neither false pessimism nor false optimism was the right, right answer. In some ways, they were asking the wrong question. They were asking the wrong questions, especially since they were the people of God. They were asking the wrong question. The real question was, where is the Lord? Where, where is the God of our history? Where is the God whom we trust? Where is the God of the covenant? Does God have a word for us in this situation? And if God has a word, well, then you need a prophet. And the prophet at that time in Jerusalem was Jeremiah. But the problem was that the exiles were some 1,600, what, 1,000 miles away in Babylon. So how do you get a word of the Lord to them? And so Jeremiah sent them a letter. And that's the letter we have in the text of Jeremiah 29 verses 1 to 14. So the first thing this letter brought to the exiles was a, a surprising new perspective. You just have to read verses 4 to 6. Here's a question. Who was responsible for this? Who was responsible for this captivity? Notice the, the different answers given in verse 1 and then what God says in verses 4 to 7. Verse 1 we read, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people, and listen to this, all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then listen to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who had done it, we might ask? The answer is both. Both were true, but different perspectives on the same historical event. At the level of human history, the armies of Babylon, yes, the 
powers of Nebuchadnezzar did it. And at the level of God history, what the prophet sees through the eyes of faith, in and behind all this is the, all that is happening is the hand of God, the God of his people. Jeremiah says, yes, Israel has been defeated. Your city has been destroyed. But the Lord God of Israel is still on the throne. He is still in control of world events. I think it's always difficult to believe in God's sovereignty in world affairs when you are up close and caught up in the midst of it and you begin to doubt. And I think it's the, it's the danger of a single story. Uh, and the way I put it is the danger of reading only the newspaper, only social media, and not read God's story. And we allow the newspaper and social media to, to shape the narrative of our lives. So what does the sovereign Lord say through his prophet Jeremiah? He says, settle down where you are. You're not going to be there for two months or three months or one year. Well, you're going to be there for two generations. You're going to be there for 70 years. An impossible task to believe and a very difficult message for the exiles to accept. God says through Jeremiah, be where you are with me. I am there with you. Right where you are, I am. Jeremiah was not telling them that this was their permanent home, but this was their present home. And that is where God would be with them at that time. I think it's important to remind ourselves that this world is not our permanent home, but it's our present home nonetheless. Our present home is temporary, our present home does not last forever and there is a home that is permanent and that is eternal. And often I think we, we confuse the difference between permanent and eternal. Is it? We, we live in the temporary as though this will last forever. And I think it's wise to remind each other that this home is our present home and it is temporary. Someone who perhaps was in that audience when that letter was read was Daniel and his three friends. Uh, remember, they were among the first to be taken into exile when they were boys. And in Daniel chapter 1, you see Daniel and his friends doing exactly what Jeremiah said the exiles should do. Probably every sermon you have heard on Daniel uh, often emphasizes his refusal to eat the meat that is offered to the idols. And we're all told to, to be like Daniel. But what is not said is how Daniel and the rest of the exiles accepted the inculturation program of being where they were in Babylon. They accepted, for example, Babylonian names, the, the language, the education, uh, jobs and culture in the civil servant in the civil service and and they they worked for the government that enslaved them and this was deep deep enculturation so there is a, an amazing degree by which 
they had accepted and settled in that context. But here is what was different. They also retained their faith and their distinctiveness. They accepted Babylon as their present but temporary home. They lived in the temporary with an understanding of what is eternal. And that's the reason why they retained their faith and their distinctives. I think there's something special here about a, a perspective that calls on God's people to, to remain faithful to their covenant God and recognize that he is with them even in the most horrendous circumstances. For the exiles of Judah, the, this was a surprising, unwelcome, but ultimately a hope-filled perspective. As Christians, we have a lot to reflect on regarding the, the gospel culture conversation. And, and I know you guys continue to talk about that. Uh, we, we need to continue to reflect on that. What does it mean to be an authentic, in my case, an authentic African Christian? What does that mean? What does it mean to be an authentic Chinese Christian and Japanese, African American? Like, what does it, what does it mean? Where, where have I drawn the line between positive enculturation and giving covenant loyalty to my culture and ancestors? So the first thing this letter brought to the exiles was a surprising new perspective to their captivity. And the second was to give them a new mission. And as you read this, especially as you come to verse 7, I, I pity the person who had to stand up and read the letter. Verse 7 says this, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Can you imagine the angry reaction to this letter? This is not what it should say. Yes, it should say what we read in Psalm 122. What does Psalm 122 say? Well, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. But not pray for the peace, for the shalom of Babylon? Impossible. No ways. We know what we want from Babylon. Psalm 137 says it all. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That is what we want for Babylon. We want blood. We want revenge. Don't ask us to pray for these people. And so Jeremiah calls them to a surprising, shocking, unwelcome reaffirmation of their original mandate. And what was their original mandate? To be a blessing to the nations. You know what God called you to do. To be a people with a mission to the nations. And did God say pray only for the nations that like you? Or pray for those who are not your enemies? No, says Jeremiah. Seek the welfare instead. Pray for them. 
seek their shalom, seek their well-being. And remember, this is about 500 years or more before the Lord Jesus said it. This is as close as you would get in the Old Testament to saying, love your enemies. Jeremiah could have pointed them to their scriptures. For example, Leviticus 19 verse 18, you must love your neighbors as yourself. But what is often not noticed is the other end of, chapter, uh, of the chapter in verse 34. And it says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In other words, equality of all ethnic groups before the Lord is right there in the Torah, in the law of Moses. You shall love them as you love yourself. You notice the same Hebrew phrase is used in two other places in the Old Testament. Uh, in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then Leviticus 19 verse 34, You shall treat the foreigner who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And it's though Jeremiah is calling them back to this mandate, reminding them that this is how the Abrahamic mandate is to be fulfilled. God blessed you so that you can be a blessing and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, even the Babylonians. And once again, I wonder if this is something that Daniel and his friends took to heart. We, we know, for example, that Daniel was a man of prayer. He prayed three times a day. I, I wonder, I wonder who was at the top of his prayer list. And I have a sneaking suspicion that it was King Nebuchadnezzar. What we do know is that in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream and Daniel comes in and he knows that this dream is about him and he recognizes that the judgment of God is coming on King Nebuchadnezzar. And what do you imagine was Daniel's response? What, what could have been your response? When you wake up one morning and your, 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 your master who has enslaved you, who has destroyed your city, Judgment is coming to him. He is a man who has lived all his life under this ruthless king who has destroyed his city and his temple and killed thousands of his brothers and sisters. You know, drove him and his friends as boys to Babylon and forced them to live there. And now he hears this regime, this king, this empire is about to collapse wouldn't he be saying yes praise the lord it's about time i have lived long enough to see the judgment of god upon my enemies that would be understandable but that was not daniel's response in fact daniel was so upset he was so upset when he understood what the dream meant 
He was so upset that he couldn't speak. And Nebuchadnezzar the king had to persuade him to speak. And his opening words were, O king, I wish this dream was for your enemies and not you. But it is for you and you need to realize that you and your city stand under God's judgment. Then he goes on with this marvelous civil servant language. And remember, Daniel was not a prophet. He was a civil servant. He was an administrator. And he says to the king, Be pleased, O king, to accept my advice. And what advice does he give to King Nebuchadnezzar? You read this in Daniel 4 verse 27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And so Daniel offers him a way out of judgment by doing justice and stopping his oppression. He says, if you do this, maybe God will suspend his judgment upon you. Daniel, it seems, had learned to love Nebuchadnezzar. He had come to some degree of affection for this man and did not want to see him suffering under the destructive judgment of God. And we have to ask the question, why? I imagine it was at least in part that Daniel was praying for Nebuchadnezzar. It's terribly hard to hurt someone that you're praying for. Why? Because the more you pray for them, the less you want to see them hurt. And so Jeremiah gives to these exiles this mission to, to turn their mourning into mission to, to pray for the Babylonian Empire. And this echoes the words of Jesus that we know so well. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who oppress you. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul urges Christians to pray for kings and governors, secular pagan governors of the Roman Empire. He says, pray for them. It's part of our mission to be a blessing where we are. Even if where we are is a place we radically dislike and wish to see change. We are called upon to both pray for God's blessing and to be a blessing. Let's not imagine that Jeremiah was not naive when he said uh, to the exiles, settle down, pray, uh, be a blessing. Well, Jeremiah knew perfectly well that Babylon stood under the judgment of God for its wickedness. He knew that. In fact, as you continue to read Jeremiah, in the very next diplomatic post back, Jeremiah sent chapters 50 and chapter 51. And if you read those two chapters, they are a comprehensive declaration of God's judgment on Babylon, the, the very nation that God had used as an agent of his judgment on Israel. Babylon stood under God's judgment and that judgment would come. But in the meantime, says Jeremiah, seek their welfare. 
be a blessing to them. Pray for them. Pray for their welfare. Pray for them. And be a witness to the Babylonians. We said in the beginning that Israel was in exile because of the sovereign purpose of God. What I didn't highlight was why. And this is our final point. And the answer was that God was acting in judgment against them for their habitual, persistent generation of sin and rebellion against him. This is one of the ways in which the history of the Old Testament Israel stands as a warning to God's people in every era, in every generation, that ultimately God's judgment begins with his own people. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. And so God had threatened to drive them out of their land if they broke the covenant. And so they did. They broke the covenant. And so he drove them out of their land to Babylon. When this happened, so many of them thought, we are done. This is it. We're not going to survive this. This is the end of us. And so there is this great surprise to hear from Jeremiah that this was not the end. That there was hope even in the midst of judgment. But it would not be immediate. Those opening words of verse 10 must have come as a real downer initially. 70 years that's a long time, especially when you're facing it up front. 70 long years. But God says, don't worry, your freedom will come. Yes, in the future, your freedom will come. Babylon's time will also come, as it does to every human empire and power. Evil empires come, they rise, they flourish, they dominate. And they wither, they implode, and they pass away. And that is the message we need to hear as much in our present world order as in all the empires of the past. We should know better how it will all end. We should know better. And it is in the midst of the reality of God's judgment of the nations of the world and the judgment of his own people that we should hear the wonderful, wonderful promise of verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. While the exiles needed to embrace their present circumstances, they were being challenged to have an eye to the future. Again, don't just read the newspaper. Read God's word as well. So that you can keep your eyes on the future, on the eternal, that which God is doing. I know the plans that I have for you. And so in absolute confidence in God's overarching plan and promises was the very thing that would sustain them. So notice that the blessings it speaks of are placed firmly in the future. Often 
our Pentecostal charismatic brothers want to use this text to talk about blessings yesterday and blessings now. Well, these blessings are firmly rooted in the future. Only after 70 years have passed can Judah expect a return to their land and in line with God's promises. As 21st century exiles, we may also have to clop up clock up our 70 years. Scripture says three score years and ten. We might have to clock that up before we finally, we finally go home. And Job uh, 14 verse 5 says, He has numbered our days, but when our number is up, we will be with the Lord forever. And that's the reason why we should not be scared. When we leave, we're going home, our permanent home, and we'll be with the Lord forever. And then secondly, God has a plan. There is one great plan that spans the millennia. But the realization of that plan involves tiny personal details, as prophecy shows, as well as the rise and the fall of nations, of empires. His plan for his people involves future blessing. And because his promises are reliable, we enjoy great hope. And that's the reason why we, we need to live today in the light of eternity. Because that is what gives us hope. The goal of God's plan is truly wonderful. But the path to it may prove painful. We are assured, however, that the Lord has plotted the course for each one of us. I know the plan I have for you. God has planned the course for each one of us. All the twists and turns are known to him. But the destination is also known to us. That's the beauty of being New Testament believers, isn't it? We know how it's all going to end. We know that one day it will be all over and we will be with the Lord. Romans 8, 28 is the New Testament equivalent of Jeremiah 29, verse 11. In Romans 8, Paul is stressing how individual Christians are part of God's great purpose. And that purpose will mean glorification. The golden chain that links predestination and calling and justification is glorification. And that chain is unbreakable. And again, that's the joy of the Reformed faith, isn't it? The one saved, always saved. Huh? If, if the death of Christ on the cross was effective, huh? if it did what it was intended to do, then I am his forever. <laughs> Glorification is that unbreakable chain. It is that glory that constitutes the good which all things are heading towards. It is this future and hope that are so vital as the backdrop of our present sufferings. But do we ever notice the context of this promise in verse 11? This is a precious word, but it is given as a surprising word for people who were standing at the point under God's judgment. In the midst of history, in the midst of circumstances that are unwelcome, full of sin and suffering and oppression, Scripture says God is in control and he brings hope. What should be the response to the promise? Look again at verse 12 and 14. 
for the response called for here. Turning back to the Lord, seeking Him with all our heart, with genuine repentance, with obedience, with seeking to be faithful to the Lord. And so it is this time again with Daniel himself in chapter 9 of Daniel. Daniel tells us when he knew the Babylonian time was coming to the end, reading the prophecies of Jeremiah's promise in verse 11, what does Daniel do? He fell to confession to the God of his people, the sin of his people, asking God to give mercy, to restore, to heal, to bring back as he had promised. It is to a confessing, repentant, contrite people that God's promise in verse 11 should be heard and understood. And here's the word which turns victims. Huh? Victims who are in exile. Here's a word that turns victims into visionaries. Because this enables these Israelites to look up and to look forward. Not with a quick fix. Remember, 70 years. But to look forward. In fact, all those who had this letter being read, they did not make it. But they believed that this was for their children and their children's children. And that gave them hope. And that is the surprising hope. The surprising context in which it was given. New perspective. Surprising new mission. And surprising new hope. As God demonstrates that he's sovereign. And he is in control. So here's a word that turns mourners and refugees and victims into resident missionaries because God has a mission for his people. A word of hope and promise that God will never abandon us, that wherever we go, God is with us. And this is a word of hope for every generation. Why? Because in some sense, all of us are refugees. All of us are displaced persons. All of us are far, far away from home. And no matter where we live, no matter our circumstances, God is right there. And his promises will come true. Come, let's pray. Again, Lord, we give you thanks for, for the surprises. The surprises that even in the midst of hardship, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of enslavement, you bring hope because you're right there with us. And Lord, how we pray that you, you turn our mourning into worship, even as we believe your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.